I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So I'm coming at you today recording from the place I'm in for several months in Oaxaca, Mexico. So forgive the background noise. And I also have a bit of a cold, so hopefully I don't sound too squeaky. But my next guest uh, came about because I asked a previous guest, Ed Gillespie, hopefully you've listened to his episode, who he would recommend as a guest. And he, he named some people and I followed them all up. And this one is one... I'm particularly excited about because after Ed recommended this next guest, I went and read some of their books. I started listening to them on other people's podcasts and just generally getting incredibly impressed by their work. (laughs) So I've become a bit of a fan. So I'm really excited about this next guest. I'll go ahead and introduce Margaret Heffernan. Margaret is an entrepreneur, a chief executive and author. She was born in Texas raised in Holland, and educated at Cambridge University. She worked in BBC Radio for five years, where she wrote, directed, and produced, and commissioned dozens of documentaries and dramas. But just to add to her cool points, she then also produced music videos with Virgin Records. Then she ran the trade association, IPPA, which represented the interests of independent film and television producers, and was once described by the Financial Times as the most formidable lobbying organization in England, which is high praise indeed. In 1994, she returned to the U.S. where she worked on public affairs campaigns in Massachusetts. So that's lobbying, advocacy, etc. She worked with software companies trying to break into multimedia. Sort of, if you think 1994, that was back in the age when these things were just starting to go big. She then bought and sold leading internet businesses as a chief executive, and was named one of the internet's top 100 by Silicon Alley Reporter in 1999. She's won many, many awards. So Margaret's TED Talks have been seen by over 15 million people. You heard that right. One, five, 15 million people. And she's written six books so far. Her third book, Willful Blindness, is the one that I picked up last year and found more incredibly relevant now during a pandemic than ever, even though it was published in 2014. And when it was published, it was a finalist for the Financial Times Goldman Sachs Best Book Award, and the Financial Times named it as one of its best business books of the decade. We'll get into talking about this because it is, as I mentioned, super relevant now more than ever. So then in 2020, Margaret published her sixth book called Uncharted, How to Map the Future Together. And it explores how individuals and organizations can creatively and productively prepare for an unknowable future. And what great timing. Again, as we all plunged into the great unknown that a lot of us are still in because of this pandemic, what timing for that book. It again was nominated for Best Business Book of the Year by the Financial Times, and it won a whole host of other awards. It lays out an inspiring picture of what can lie on the other side of uncertainty, which is obviously a discomfort we as humans naturally avoid and is very much aligned with the theme of this podcast, so we'll definitely be talking about that. 
So once again, thank you to Ed Gillespie for recommending Margaret. Thank you to Margaret for agreeing to be here because her work has already begun to have a great impact on me and I look forward to getting to know it even more. So in finally, before I say welcome to Margaret, she also works at the Forward Institute, which is where she works with my friend Ed, where she's a leading thinker on responsibility and leadership and co-leads their faculty. Welcome, Margaret. Well, thank you. It's really lovely to be talking to you, and I just love your subject. I'm glad you do. I figured you would, people. You're sort of one of the OGs of bringing discomfort <laughs> to the world in a very framed way. But so I've suggested that we sort of focus on a more or less loose topic this time, which is how discomfort is necessary to shape a future we all actually want to inhabit and can inhabit. Let's be real. So the first question I always ask is what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Mm. That's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, <clears throat> I think it was probably when I was about 14 and I was in a school in the Netherlands and at 14, you, got, you move up into high, essentially high school. And um, and so there's a sort of mini graduation ceremony at this point because you're you're changing, you know, the building and the teachers and everything. And um, and I used to play the piano pretty well. And so I'd been asked to play a particular piano piece for this ceremony. And at the last moment, um, the organizers who were all teachers changed their mind and asked me to play something else, which was a rather insipid piece of music. And I remember being quite unhappy about this, partly because I'd practiced the other one quite a lot, so that was annoying. But I wouldn't have minded doing the work. It's just that they replaced a wonderful piece of music with something really, you know, pathetic and insipid and trite. And I was complaining about this over dinner to my family. And my father said, well, you know, Margaret, once you start playing, they're not going to stop you. <laughs> And and I thought about that and I thought he's right because they'll just want to, you know, everything to appear to be smooth. And anyway, we'd already rehearsed with the first piece of music. So I the next day when I went to do this, I had a, a moment of intense discomfort because I, it was just that one moment where I had to decide. Which piece is it going to be originally studied and that I thought was a superior piece? And it was a moment of intense discomfort, followed by a moment of extreme euphoria. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, my father was right. Nobody stopped me. You know, I think it took a while before they realized, you know, exactly what had happened. And by the time they realized that, they thought, well, you know, everybody's trooping in and it's all going. It looks like it's going according to plan. So who wants to mess it up now? And I was never going to see these people again. So, um, so it was it was a really great, it was a really great experience. It was a really great lesson, and it's one of the things I most cherish of the memories of my father because it was a really deeply naughty thing to say. Wow, a father who taught you to ask forgiveness rather than permission. What a powerful thing to teach. A child, but particularly a daughter, because we're so socialized to just 
do what's expected of us and be nice. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't remember him ever saying anything about asking for forgiveness. <laughs> I think he just thought, hey, you're leaving, you're graduating. What the hell? <laughs> wow, that's brilliant advice. So that set you on a course, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, do speaking engagements now, which are a little tense because I'm going to be critical of an organization or a particular leader or leadership style. Uh, or I'm going to be contentious somehow. And, you know, and I often think back to that experience and think, well, you know, Margaret, once you're on the stage and get started, nobody's going to stop you. So just stick to your guns and keep going. And and that happened. I did a speaking engagement like that last night. And um, And what happened is what usually happens, which is people really like it because... By and large, I'm saying what everybody else in the room is thinking, but they're afraid to say. Up with being made uncomfortable more than we think, or is it that people who in positions of power are so unused to being challenged, they quite savor it sometimes? Well, I think really good people like straight talking. And the truth is, if you're in any position of power, you're surrounded by pleasers, which is can become really unless you're very vain, it can become really suffocating and tedious. Mm. And if someone's prepared to tell you something, perhaps you don't know, perhaps you hadn't thought of, perhaps you hadn't seen it from that perspective, that's actually kind of exciting because in a way it means, I mean, it gets you thinking. Now, people who don't like thinking, of which there are a large number, um, you know, well, like that. But I think serious people like a serious challenge. I don't think they like a rude challenge, and I don't think they like a mindless challenge. But, you know, if you're essentially saying, I don't think you can solve the problem this way, but you might be able to solve it that way, and it's not completely insane, right? then you've just been handed a plate full of options. You know, why shouldn't you be grateful? Yeah, that's a good point about style of how you think uncomfortable too. Because I suppose if to people who might be uncomfortable with tension or conflict, you kind of paint it all with the same brush and just avoid discomfort because you see it all as bad. But there's a way to wade into tension, isn't there, in a way that is yeah. incredibly exciting and productive. And it's all just about how you frame it and how you put it out there. And I, I think from having read your stuff and watched you and listened to you, you have this style that comes across as quite affable, if I may say that, and think, okay, she's speaking the truth. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's part of what was going on last night, which is I didn't want this particular individual who's taken over a very troubled organization. I didn't want him to think I was being just kind of mindlessly oppositional. I didn't want him to think I was rude. And and I think what he ended up thinking, I mean, thinking was, wow, I never thought of it that way. Well, that's fantastic. Because actually, I don't know his organization nearly well enough to know for sure that what he's doing is right or wrong. What I do know is there are lots of different ways to see it. And that generally, if you're in a bit of a pickle, 
having some different ways to see the problem can be really helpful. Mm. So, um, so it's quite a fine line between being co-opted and um, and just being oppositional. And I think there's so much debate, you know, on radio and television and online, which is just kind of mean and mindlessly oppositional. And I don't ever want to be in that camp because I don't think anything good comes out of it. But I do always think there are different ways to look at things. Quite possibly, none of them is absolutely right. But when you start kind of thinking more broadly, you tend to find more better, you know, ways to do whatever it is you have to do. And hopefully good leaders or most people recognize that having a perspective that makes you uncomfortable is probably one of the most useful ones because it it takes you someplace yeah. that you couldn't have gotten on your own. Yeah. And actually it was quite interesting because before I went to do this event, I was talking to my son about it. He happened to be home for the weekend. And um, and we had quite a big argument about it. Hmm. And my son and I love arguing with each other. <laughs> um, and that turned out to be really helpful. You know, it really sharpened my thinking about it. And I think this is the thing, um, which is, I think, argument that is well done and isn't personally abusive um, does sharpen your thinking. And the other thing I've learned through years and years and years of arguing with my son is that nobody ever changes their mind in front of you. What happens is if it's a really good discussion, they go away and think about it a lot. Mm. And it's not necessarily, oh, you're right, I'm wrong. It's, okay, well, now I've seen some things I hadn't seen before. That's helpful. Don't quite know what to make of it, but it's definitely added to the mix. I think that might be a social media quote around this episode. <laughs> Nobody ever changes their mind in front of me. Which, what struck me as well is, is you know, both of us are highly educated, and academia does teach you the skill of debate without making it personal. But a lot of people don't have that ability or that training for lack of a better word it's not that it's a bad thing but a lot of people don't have that training to actually have debate i think in our culture we're not taught to debate very well so when i moved to scotland to do my master's degree i loved the fact that it's a place where people expect to debate you and and they will debate you just because it's good for you even if they agree with you yeah and that was really fun once i learned to embrace that and be like oh this is actually quite fun and it's not in any way personal and you can tell the difference between when someone's making it personal and it's just a debate. And so I was thinking about, you know, what you're saying about how people handle your, your challenge. And it, it almost, I think your intention really does come through. So I want to talk about willful blindness in particular, because I absolutely loved this book. And there's a really great line on the back of the cover of the book that says the greatest failures in our lives stem not from what is hidden or secret, but from what stands in front of us that we refuse to consider. And obviously, we both focus a lot on leadership and social issues and big trends. And so we may be our people who look squarely at things in front of us, but all of us miss something. So what are some of the really current real dangers? 
things like groupthink or things you call quote unquote, just following orders. What are the dangers in our culture right now? I mean, obviously the big, big, big one is the climate crisis and our abject failure to act on it. I wrote a play for BBC Radio about the trial of um, seven Extinction Rebellion activists who were arrested for a criminal damage to the Shell headquarters, um, which was a fantastic experience writing the play and getting to know them because it's a the play is based entirely from court transcripts and interviews that I did with them. Mm. Um, I would have to say, having spent a lot of time talking to them, there was a lot about the crisis I didn't understand or hadn't really hadn't really considered in terms of where our very abusive attitudes to nature come from. Mm. Um, I was in London last night and I walked, happened to walk past the very shell headquarters, you know, that whose windows there's a lot of, there's a lot of security outside these days. Yeah. And I was just thinking, how can it still be there? How can this company still think it's doing anything useful in the world when it has lied and lied and lied? And how can it be that people working in there who have children who are going to reap the whirlwind of their parents' willful blindness, how can they bear to do what they're doing? So that's, you know, that's the first super, super example. Allied to that is, you know, in the UK, we have an awful lot of very mean, shrill rhetoric around uh, migrants and migration. Mm, yes. And I, you know, I keep thinking, and it's one of these thoughts that won't let me alone, but I, there's nothing, I can't think of anything to do with it which is the climate crisis is going to displace hundreds of millions of people. What we are seeing now in terms of a so-called migration crisis is just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a drop in a teacup. And we could right now be planning for this so that when people are displaced by extreme weather events, we have a plan. We have a plan. We have resources and we can save lives and we can avoid a massive amount of human misery. And I don't know that this is going to happen because I have secret information. It's blindingly obvious that this mm. migration crisis is going to happen. People have been saying it. Shell itself has been saying it since 1991. And I just can't get over the fact that nobody will do anything about it except spin a fiction, at least here in the UK, that we're going to stop migration. You know? I mean, seriously? Seriously, we're going to sit back and watch hundreds of millions of people drown on our beaches? Seriously? You know, we should be grown-ups doing something about this, but we're not. It's mind-blowing, because I've been watching the news over how homelessness is being criminalized. And, yeah. you know, it's now possible to commit people to mental health institutions if they're unstable and homeless, or simply the installation of hostile architecture. So homeless people can't sleep at certain places or can't sit certain places. And rather than fixing the root cause of it, which is usually poverty and or 
poor mental health care. Yeah. We criminalize. We, we want to stop people from being allowed to be in our presence because they are suffering from these things and it has rendered them homeless. Oh, it's, yeah, it's horrifying. It is horrifying. And I think, you know, the notion that UK Parliament is, you know, the mother of parliaments. It's a pretty vicious mother these days. And, um, and just because it's the oldest or one of the oldest, it's not one, it's not the oldest, but one of the oldest. You know, that doesn't actually mean anything important. Because actually what democracies need to do to stay vibrant and relevant is they need to change, they need to adapt. Mm. And I think the failure, and I think this is relevant to the US government also, the failure to adapt democracy for current times is another willful blindness. You know, the expectation that an, you know, an 18th century constitution is fit for purpose in the 21st century is nuts. It's absolutely nuts. You know, I mean, you wouldn't cook like that. Right? You wouldn't govern your transportation system like that. So why on earth are you governing your governing system like that? Yeah. So this, you know, so everybody's everybody's supposed to adapt. Everything is supposed to adapt, but not democracy. It is interesting that it's become a dogma. And I've had a conversation with someone in my own family in the States who I think we were talking about something that is literally contained in an amendment to the Constitution. And their response was, let's just leave the Constitution alone, shall we? Meaning like, leave my rights alone as a very privileged middle class white person. And I was like, oh, my God, it's an amendment. It's literally not in the original Constitution. <laughs> it's an amendment. But there's this sort of yeah, dogmatic idea that we, we nailed it. We got it right. That democracy still works when it clearly does not. And we obviously had some spellbinding moment unparalleled in human history where everything we wrote was right forever. Mm. <laughs> this, is, this is madness. Yeah, we knew something 400 years ago we don't know now. And and yeah, I know it is madness. It is. And it's really depressing to watch because if this is supposed to be the benchmark of freedom and, you know, having a successful, happy life. So personalizing that because it's sort of, you know, on the macro. And I always want to challenge people listening. And it's just, it's my nature. I think it's yours too. How to personalize what you're saying about what is something that probably most of us are being willfully blind about that could be causing us real discomfort or harm in the future that we're avoiding the discomfort now, but actually it's just kicking the can down the road. We're just, we're just putting it off. What do we really need to, I mean, it's pick it out of a hat, but just one thing that people listening to this could actually think, okay, I'm going to read something about this. I'm going to think about this. I need to be uncomfortable about this because I need to then do something about it. Yeah. Well, I think what I found in the context of the climate crisis, if, if eventually you can't ignore it, and I think eventually nobody's going to be able to ignore it. Mm -mm. But I think about right now, you know, and I think many people avoid it because if you really stare it in the face, it's excruciating. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's at a level of discomfort I've never known in my life about, you know, external events. Um, then what makes you feel better about it isn't ignoring it at all. Mm -hmm. It's doing something 
however small it is. So, you know, I live in a very small village of about a thousand people. And I decided to become a parish councillor. And I run a couple of, you know, events to help people reduce their energy consumption, reduce their carbon footprint, enhance biodiversity in the village, plant more trees. Now, in the grand scheme of things, these aren't going to move the needle. But they definitely make me feel better because there's only one thing worse than thinking about climate crisis, and that is thinking about how you're doing nothing. Mm. Part of what happens when you do something is, A, you become much more informed, which is helpful. But also you find other people who are also in the same state. So now you're not alone anymore. Mm. And now you can do more. And as you start having conversations, you discover that people start changing. So just to take that out of the abstract, <clears throat> so so all this stuff I've been doing in the village has meant I've had to get much more educated about things like energy consumption and how we reduce our energy consumption. And as it turns out, by some slight miracle, I think, um, in the past year, we've reduced our energy consumption by 60%, wow. which I would never have believed possible. But, um, you know, we just, you know, we, we insulated everywhere we could. We reduced drafts everywhere we could. We changed the timing on our heating system. Um, we reduced some of the temperatures that we run hot water at. I mean, we just changed every single thing we could think of. Mm. And, um, and it's had a far greater impact than I would have thought. Now, when I start talking to people about that, when they come out with their usual, yeah, but what can you do? I start saying, okay, so we reduced our energy consumption by 60%. We now run an electric car. I've stopped flying all long haul flights. So this isn't going to change the world, but my carbon footprint has just shrunk pretty spectacularly. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that because I think, yay, Margaret's such an angel. I'm just saying, when I applied myself to it, I found stuff I could do and I stopped feeling helpless. Mm. Feeling helpless for me is kind of torture. So anyway, so you know, that was, I don't know, I was having this conversation a while ago. And I get an email from a friend saying, um, oh, we're so happy our apartment building has just been given an energy rating of A+, which means it has a really low carbon footprint. And now instead of driving, we're taking trains everywhere. So this stuff becomes quite contagious. Yeah. And the kind of positivity it produces becomes quite contagious. And people think, well, she can do it. I can do it. I mean, she's not a rocket scientist. She's just kind of filling in some, you know, getting rid of some drafts, right? Yeah. And so when I get that email, I think, oh, isn't that great? Because I help me, but I help somebody else. And now they don't feel so helpless either. Mm. Now that's great. So I just, I try when I have, I mean, the discomfort I have is over the climate is at times really extreme. I mean, there are times I just, I'm so overcome with grief, I just stay in bed and cry. Mm -hmm. But but I'm not capable of staying in bed and crying forever. Right? Does it get boring? Right? Yeah. Um, but so I've got to do something. But the more I do, the less I cry. It's an interesting point because 
And, and I would just put this out there to people listening, maybe pause after I ask this question, but what is currently making you feel helpless? What are you avoiding thinking about because it's too overwhelming or you think I can't do anything about this, or maybe I don't want to do anything about this. Pause and have a think. Because my point would be everything takes effort. Ignoring things takes just as much, if not more energy than actually doing something about it. But that that feeling of helplessness is harmful to people and also harmful to us collectively because it keeps you from addressing things that can be addressed because everything can be addressed. I see this in, I have an increasing number of friends who are realizing they're non-binary. So they're non-gender binary. They don't identify as male or female. And it requires a change of language. And particularly in Spanish, they're, you know, there's masculine, there's feminine. And it's interesting to watch friends struggle with not feeling seen or recognized because they reveal who they really truly are. And people go, I can't be bothered to learn my new language. Or they get quite defensive about, you know, changing amigo or amiga to amigue or talking like aye instead of aya or el. And, and it is, we have always changed our language. We, our languages have evolved over millennia. So to say, no, I'm not going to change my language makes an increasing number of people feel unseen and unimportant. And what collective impact is that going to have? You know, it, it's creating a new level of discrimination. So I'm going to put it out there to people. Maybe climate change is something you need to focus on getting uncomfortable about and doing something about. Or maybe you knew, know people who are not straight, heterosexual, he, she, and you can make them feel seen by simply just starting to realize that you can change your language for them. Whether or not you want to, everything takes effort. Ignoring their identity takes effort, but also making them feel welcome takes effort. So that's my challenge to people listening because I feel quite passionate about that because these are people I love and I sometimes get it wrong. I, I forget their new name and it's just, oh, I misgender them and it's and then I have to apologize, but I'm willing to try and they really value that. So that's another one that I think is increasingly important in my world. But I really love what you said about everything takes effort. And I'd even compound that. I'd say the things that take effort are the things that make you grow as a person and, um, and learn. And, the, and, and what I refer that to is... So I've written six books, the, and I'm a pretty pretty disciplined writer. And so I write to a, a, a schedule. And with every single book I've ever written, there's one chapter that will not behave itself. <laughs> just one? <laughs> just, there's always one, and it won't follow the schedule. Mm. And it just, you know, and it takes a real wrestling match to get it into what it needs to be. And the, in, when I wrote my first book, I thought, you know, I thought this shows Margaret, you're not really a writer. And when I wrote my second book, I thought, oh, this is the famous second book problem. And when I wrote my third book, I thought, this is that fucking chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so just surrender to the fact that it's difficult because what you know now is this will end up being your favorite chapter because this is where you're learning something you didn't quite understand. Mm. So just surrender to it. Realize it's going to throw you off schedule. That's not the end of life as you know it. It'll be okay. 
what really threw me with my most recent book is it turned out to be the first chapter and that did kind of suck. <laughs> Ooh, how do you get past that? Because that could, that could just kill your momentum. Yeah, it was, it was really, it was excruciating. It was absolutely excruciating, but you know, I got through it and then by comp- by comparison, the rest of the book was a walk in the park. <laughs> oh, it's like having a difficult firstborn and the rest are just a cakewalk. Yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. Oh God, I've only written one book so far and it was like giving birth for nine months. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah, it is. It and is. people ask me if it's so hard, why do you do it? And of course the answer is because it's hard. Yeah. Because that's how you learn stuff. It's... I mean, people do 30 day challenges and things all the time where people go from being a couch potato to an Iron Man. So I think if we could just like apply that same amount of effort to things that we otherwise avoid, there's maybe it's worth thinking for people listening. What is the thing that you would do a 30 day challenge on? And then just remind yourself that you can change something. You can stick to something for 30 days. You can make effort on something you'd really rather otherwise avoid. And then what else can you apply that skill to? Because it is a skill, isn't it? It's a practice. Like writing, it's a practice. You just do it every day, whether or not you want to, right? Yeah, and I think it's, um, and the more you do it, the easier it gets. Because the more you understand how productive it is. And what, you know, so it's a little bit like in lockdown, I started cycling. And to begin with, I had to make myself do it because I thought you're not getting any exercise and it's good for you. And now I do it because I, I know I once I'm on the bike and I'm warmed up, I'm going to love it. Yeah. So I don't have to browbeat myself into doing it because now I know I really like doing it and I like the way it makes me feel and I like the way it helps me sleep. So but if you don't put that investment in at the beginning, you know, you're not going to find it later. Yeah. I'm having to face the prospect of joining a new gym in Mexico because I really have learned to love lifting weights. I like how I feel. Oh, right. Yeah. And also, you know, Mexico, you don't see a lot of women in the weight room here, but it's sort of like, okay, now I have to go do this in Mexican Spanish, which I thought I spoke Spanish. And then I hit Mexico and realized, wow, <laughs> <laughs> the words are different here. But so yeah, I've sort of been putting it off for the rest for this week because I have yeah. work to do, but this is my complacency to overcome because it would just get easier and easier to, to not go. So that's the other end of it. Like the more you put off the discomfort of something, the more you learn to live with that discomfort and that's not actually where you want to be. Right. So yeah, a lot of us have probably areas of complacency or just our comfort zone is sort of living with discomfort in some area. And I think it's just really worth people even just like get a piece of paper and start to write down. What do you avoid? What are you uncomfortable about? What are you afraid of? And those are precisely the things that you want to have. I got some great relationship advice a few years ago by somebody who said, Whatever you don't want to talk about with your partner is precisely what you need to talk about right now. Like you need to dive in there because that's the stuff that will eat away at your relationship over time. So yeah, I love this. I love this wander with you, the master of discomfort here. (laughs) I mean, there is so much complacency because we're creatures who want to be comfortable and do things efficiently and just have nice lives. But ultimately, if we're avoiding a discomfort, it's something that's going to contribute to discomfort whether in your life or someone else's. So yeah. get a grip. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, that's exactly the moral of willful blindness, which is 
<clears throat> ignoring it does take a really heavy psychic toll. Mm-hmm. And so although paying attention feels scary, actually, in real terms, ignoring it is much more dangerous. I think that's what I found myself just applauding throughout the book, because it's something that I know. I mean, I'm also a mindfulness teacher, and I sort of really believe in, not believe in, study, know a lot about the energetic drain of avoidance, of not being conscious. You know, we talk about consciousness. And so that was something that I loved in this book is that it does call out, like, there is a toll to ignoring discomfort. It still takes Yeah. Yeah. So it was really interesting. I remember interviewing Sharon Watkins, who um, became known as the whistleblower of Enron. And she wasn't really a whistleblower, but that's a sort of nerdy detail. Mm. But one of the things that I remember she said is that when she was working at Enron and starting to feel that things weren't quite what they needed to be, one of the things that showed her that was she said, I looked around and all my friends, they were all drinking a little too much. And they'd all put on weight and they all were kind of had a slightly giddy happiness, you know, that felt a little phony. Mm. And she thought to herself, they know something's wrong too. That's what this behavior is about. It's about trying to forget, trying to ignore, trying to look away. And I thought it was such a profound observation. Mm. She, she saw everybody around her changing in ways that weren't very good for them. And as she was smart enough to realize it meant something. Mm. It wasn't just a fluke. It's almost the last days of Rome kind of thing. I like that. So the, the harder you see people trying to be happy or to self-soothe, the more you should start to look at, okay, what's actually wrong here? I There's an author I love. She's, they are... African-American feminist, Adrienne Marie Brown, and they talked about how they don't like the term resilience because resilience actually is about bouncing back from systems that actually break us. So rather than fixing systems, we focus on bouncing back from the things that are actually hurting us. So I'm sort of trying to figure out what to replace resilience with because I give sessions on resilience to like leadership teams and things. And I'm thinking, she's right. They're right. Resilience is not... Not what we should be looking for is a long-term goal. It's a bounce-back tactic, but what can we fix so we don't have to recover from these things? So in engineering, um, what you would talk about is robustness. Mm. So engineer for engineers, the difference between resilience and robustness is demonstrated, for example, in airplanes. Airplanes are examples of robust engineering because... They are not designed to recover from crashes. They are designed not to crash. Mm. And as a consequence, they have more engines than they need, and they have more operating systems than they need. But that's because if there's if you only had one operating system and it had a bug, then that one bug could take the whole plane down. Whereas if you have multiple ones, it's more expensive to run it and to maintain it but it gives you greater safety. And obviously you don't want everything you do in life to be robust because it'd be over elaborate, too long, too expensive, too unwieldy. But you want to think about what are the parts of my life which I really need to be robust. 
In other words, however bad it is, I'm confident we can fly through it, as opposed to those other places where, you know, I'm happy to be resilient about missing the train. I'm going to miss this train and get another one. It's It may throw my schedule off, but it's not a catastrophe. There are other areas of my life where I want a higher standard than that. But you, they can't be all aspects of your life. Yeah. So you have to decide where does robustness really count? And also in the context in which I've been talking about resilience the most, it's about how work harms people, <laughs> how most workplace cultures and structures and expectations and outcomes and KPIs are not created for anyone or anything to thrive. They're created to create profit. And we worship the market above well-being. And so it's, yeah, sort of working with leaders about how do you create a robust culture? It means investing more in the engineering so that you do have diversity of perspective and you have the time to allow that and benefit from it rather than it just getting in the way of being agile or lean or fast. Exactly. Take the time to understand that you're, you probably have a pretty mono culture in leadership. It's going to look a certain way. It's going to think a certain way, but to be more robust in your decisions and the way you do everything, you need to take more time. You need to invest more in discomfort, frankly, right? Yeah. And I think that's about, you know, for a classic example would be in technology, you need to invest a lot more time in debating what are the consequences of what we're building here? And are we sure it's what we want to do? Mm. Um, And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, you know, the more I read about the kinds of AI systems people think are going to be so marvelous, Um, is that actually to be able to make, if you're going to go down that road, to be able to make really good decisions, you need in the room to have engineers, obviously, lawyers, psychologists, sociologists, economists, and anthropologists, and ethicists, at least. And who's usually in the room? <laughs> and who's usually in the room is the economist and the engineer. So those aren't very robust discussions. Hmm. And they're dangerous discussions because of all the people who aren't in the room. And one of the problems I've been thinking about is, so if you can get all those people in the room, how do they understand each other? Hmm. Because They've got to understand each other or have some kind of common language for the discussion to be worth it. Yeah. Um, But I think one of the real risks we face currently is ethical decisions are being made by economists. That's a catastrophe waiting to happen. Or ethical decisions are being made by engineers who have no idea the psychological consequences of what they're doing. And therefore can't even begin to imagine the social consequences. So it isn't that these people are bad, although it's very tempting to think of them that way. But it's like you could, it would be stupid to ask me to vet a contract written in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. Yeah. Right. 
And so I think a lot of our companies and systems lack robustness because the diversity of thinking we need is absent. Sin duda, without doubt. Yeah, it's something I've been fascinated about and I'm trying to do research on, but I'm finding it a little tricky is bias in tech because it leaves so many people out. If you think of the typical profile of an engineer in the tech space, mm -hmm. it's a very narrow band of people. It's yeah. Yeah. Dudes, dudes in their 30s and 40s, 20s, 30s, 40s, often very Western. And it's it creates tech for people like them because they can't think necessarily like users, um, you know, diverse range of users. And it it has an impact on so many things we don't even have time to go into because I want to cover that. I want to find a good guest who will talk to me about this, but I'm struggling on that. So if you have any ideas, let me know. But it's. Yeah, there's a lot to be uncomfortable about. I kind of want to leave that hanging for people because I now want to talk about uncertainty if we can shift gears just a tiny bit. There, there isn't much of a, a difference between what we've been talking about and what I'd like to focus on. I'd like to sort of use your book on uncertainty as a lens for that because, wow, it's been a wild ride since that came out in 2020, right? <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, what timing, what universally great timing for that book to come out. So, okay, I'm going to ask. People might be wondering this, or maybe it's just me, but how can we make the most of the uncertainty, the deep end of uncertainty into which we have all been pushed? And, and we're still in. So how can we make a break with things that haven't been working for us? And rather than reaching for, okay, I'm going to pin down certainty again. I'm going to try to go back to the things that reassured me before I figured out nothing, nothing is certain and no one's really in charge. Where do we need to end up instead as a society and as a planet and as individuals? Just a small question there. Well, I think, you know, as I write in the book, I think partly we have to try to cut back on our addiction to prediction. Mm. So that I think that people are so anxious to get certainty, they'll believe almost anything that somebody says with enough conviction. And, and I guess for me, it starts with thinking that, you know, when people come out with predictions, which they do all the time, to start with understanding, well, first of all, nobody knows. Let's just be really clear about this, right? Nobody knows the future for the very simple, obvious reason that it hasn't happened yet. So it's not knowable. Now, you can look at the weather forecast and see that it is or isn't going to rain tomorrow. And that is your best chance of any kind of certainty in the world. And it will be wrong sometimes. So you have to get your head around it. It's not easy, but neither is it impossible that when people say confidently, right, 38% of jobs are going to be eliminated by 2035, um, they're using a model. The model is based on assumptions. Those assumptions may or may not be true. They may or may not be true two years from now. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, the grittiness of the data is misleading. Just because it's gritty doesn't mean that it's accurate. And it's based on a sample set of data, which is incomplete and historical, which therefore is implying 
that the future is going to be like the present, which it never is. So every one of these predictions you hear uttered with great rhetorical bravura is actually just a hypothesis. This might be what happens. At which point you can think, okay, if this might be what might happen, um, does it matter to me? Do I care? And if it does matter, and I do care, if this is true, what would I do? Mm. And you might come to the conclusion, as I often do, well, actually, if this were true, I don't think there is anything I can do right now, in which case, just get over it, ignore it. It's just noise, right? In some cases, I'll think, okay, if it's true that there's going to be another financial crash in the next five years, and I believe it to be true, or I think there's a high probability it could be true, then I might start thinking about, do I want to diversify my investments? Do I want to diversify where they are? Do I want to have a stash of cash somewhere? You know, what are the things I can do just to give me some buffers? Mm. And if I am really thoughtful and I'm really taking it seriously, I want to come up with backup plans that aren't extortionately expensive because there's a probability it won't come true. Right? Mm -hmm. So, and the other thing to do is to ask a, a kind of more exciting question, which is if this prediction were to come true, whatever it is, what would be the most fun thing I could do in the light of it? What does it change that could be pretty cool? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you may or may not know, I've, you know, I've written a lot about artists and uncertainty, and I've just written five essays on the subject for um, BBC Radio. Mm. And, the and I've done that because it strikes me that for an artist, setting out to do something uncertain is how they discover things. <laughs> it's exciting. It's an adventure. And so I think another way to deal with uncertainty is to reframe it in your own mind as, I don't know what this is. Let's go find out. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm in a new town. Let's wander around. Let's see what's here. Isn't this cool? You've just gone to Mexico. You know, you have all sorts of new things to see. You don't know what they are. That's not uncertainty. That's an adventure. I have a friend who calls it the what's over there style of travel. Yeah. You just go, oh, I've never been over there. It looks pretty safe. What's over there? And then you yeah. just got nothing or your new favorite place. So that's a great way to reframe it. And also with, with data and predictions, and we're so awash in information at all times that it can just become such a, oh, it's like being in a hurricane and just getting whipped around all the time and thinking, what do you believe? So, for example, I don't know if there is going to be a recession or not because everybody's saying there's going to be. But I think, well, it can't hurt to ensure I'm completely out of debt and have a decent amount of savings in a few different pots, because even if there isn't a recession, that's going to be good for me. And that yeah. will actually give me the freedom that I crave so that I don't have to worry about whether or not there's a recession. And, you know, I realize some people have mortgages and children in school and other factors in sort of needing to really pay attention to that. But it's, well, I guess it's kind of back to what we were talking about, robust or resilient. So how can you create robustness in certain areas of your life so that whether or not something comes true, you can 
Continue. But if you think about it, we've all gotten through this pandemic. I mean, who knows when it's going to be over? We're still here. So it wasn't predicted. It happened. It's disrupted everything, but we're still here somehow. You know, we're still getting on with it. Some people are still here. Let's be honest. Right. But, but I think, but I think your, I think your point about debt is an excellent one. And it's, I'm very interested that you make it because it's certainly been a kind of guiding principle of my life, which is a carry as little debt as humanly possible and B have very low overheads. Yes. Um, and the two of course go together. Right. Um, and it's really interesting because I can remember talking to a lot of women working in financial services, especially at a time where women were unusual in financial services. And it was a pretty brutal environment. Mm. And, and I said, you know, how did they cope with it? And I remember one of them saying to me, I have very low overheads and no debt. So I know I can always walk out. Yeah long as I know I've got my running away money, I'm prepared to stand my ground. And I think that's absolutely fundamental. Yeah. Well, and especially as, you know, traditionally women have been more financially dependent. So to the women out there listening to this, it is such a freedom because I have a partner, but we are completely financially independent, you know, sort of he's got his life and his place. And I now live wherever I want to for the year and I'm going to be debt-free very soon. And yeah, I reduced my overheads. I thought, well, I can go have an adventure in Mexico and be paying far less for my life. So everything I make goes straight into paying off my credit card and then I'm done. Yeah. And it's a really beautiful feeling because I don't have to worry about what the future holds because I will be more free to just roll with it. And that, that mental burden that has been lifted by that quite big decision to sort of un, untether my life from a certain place that was quite expensive, frankly, is such a joy. Like the result has been joy and freedom and a renewal of my most creative thinking and looking forward to like, what do I need to bring to the world in the future? So whatever you can do fundamentally to help you navigate uncertainty because you're not mired in worry about things that maybe you can do something about, I, I would encourage that. Yeah, financial freedom is an incredible place to start from when navigating uncertainty. Yeah. But I, but, you know, I mentioned the low overheads thing too, because, um, you know, I, I know lots of people who can't be debt free because they have a mortgage, right? Yeah. But they have tried to have the smallest mortgage they can have and, and live somewhere decent. And their lifestyle is very modest. Mm. And so they very deliberately, not cultivated very expensive tastes, right? Yeah. And of course, one of the really great things is that it turns out when you don't cultivate very expensive tastes, your carbon footprint's quite a lot lower. Right? <laughs> That's a nice knock. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I just think thinking about what would I do in this instance it's a creative exercise. It's an imaginative exercise. And out of it come things which are very useful, which may not even be associated with this with the thing that you started from at the first in the first place. Which is very it's a very creative process. So hence yes. why artists live in uncertainty so beautifully. It's where they need to be to create, right? Yeah. 
Well, because whenever you start something, you don't really know what it's going to be. And, you know, uh, lots of writers and painters and musicians and so on will say this, which is, you know, I started to go here. And when I followed the thread of my idea, I ended up way over here. But that's the excitement because that's the discovery. Yeah. I get the feeling from both the sort of the willful blindness topic and uncertainty. You have this zest and gutsiness that you just sort of come across as live life as an adventure is the answer to a lot of things. Embrace it, be creative, do something with gusto, because then it makes anything that would otherwise be unpleasant or avoided fun. It's a challenge. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think also, so some of this, I think, derives from um, just a fundamental orneriness, right? <laughs> um, Good word. But, but some of it also derives from uh, the fact that my first husband died when I was 30 in a very, you know, unexpected accident. Um, and I think it gave me a very visceral experience that it's always now or never time. You don't have forever. And if you want to have a rich and interesting life and you want to do some things that might be good in the world, do them now. <laughs> Just yeah. do them now. Yeah, because you never know if you'll get that pension you've been saving for or that thing you've been putting off for 10 years. Yeah, do them now. Well, you know, I agree with you. Here I am in Oaxaca. <laughs> <laughs> for no reason my mother was like so why are you going to Oaxaca and I don't know if she bought my answer but it was I don't know it called me I woke up one day and just had Oaxaca in my mind and I didn't know a thing about Oaxaca but here I am no regrets and yeah I'm not waiting till I'm retired I'm working from here so just make things work so I'm aware our time is coming to a close but I want to know what excites you about the future because it's something you obviously think a lot about and deal with it's a really good question and i'll be honest and say that i'm probably more off, often right now depressed by the future than excited by it um i'm very excited by it when i'm with young people which is one reason i like teaching this is going to sound quite perverse uh, and it might be i'm quite excited by seeing a lot of things break at the minute hmm. because I think a lot of things are broken and until people see them break, they don't really notice. And, uh, you know, I'm quite ambivalent about this because if everything breaks, you know, that's not fun. I've made enough history programs in my life to know that societal breakdown is not a walk in the park. And I'm not really talking about that. What I hope is there are enough signals that things aren't working mm. that as they accumulate, we develop a deeper capacity to address them because they simply become unignorable. Mm. And I guess I feel the, so the sooner we start paying attention to them, the better we'll be going in a, the sooner we'll be going in a, in a better direction. You know, I feel a little bit as I did you know, I was very young at the time, growing up during the Vietnam War, 
which was clearly terrible. Mm. And, you know, the, the rise of that protest movement was exhilarating and terrible. But, you know, what happened is that over time, even the most conservative people in America came to see that this was a terrible war and we shouldn't be fighting it. Mm. And so even as, you know, the protests got worse and scarier and the war got worse and scarier, it had to get to a point where people think, actually, just stop. Mm. And I guess, you know, in my optimistic mindset, I keep thinking, maybe people will get this about the climate in time. Because, you know, we've been through a pretty bumpy couple of years. And it's very rare these days to run into people who think that the weird weather we're having is just weather. So people are changing. They are absolutely changing their understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. And if we're lucky, and it is going to require a lot of luck, that will become an overwhelming sentiment that cannot be ignored. Mm -hmm. So although it does sound perverse, and I'm not entirely sure that it isn't. <laughs> I'd rather, you know, face it now than have a couple more, you know, lovely years and then face it because we're in a race against time. Yeah. And actually, I, I completely agree with your answer because I feel like this pandemic and the acceleration of climate change, whether radical changes in society, I'm having the time of my life because, yeah, it, it ties directly into your themes, willful blindness and uncertainty, because people want to be comfortable as long as possible. And it's only when things really start to break down that we will do something about it. So, yeah, I agree. I'm personally quite excited by the breakdowns we're seeing. I'm like, more, more, more. It's going to be hard. And we're all woven into these systems. It's unavoidable. But it needs to happen because otherwise, I don't think we will make the changes rapidly enough to ensure the survival of the species we need to survive as human beings, for example. But something that gave me hope, actually, was last week, the reminder in the news coming out that the ozone layer has healed itself. Um, exactly. And that that came from somebody who, in the 70s, saw this data and went, hold on, there is a growing hole in the ozone layer. And so as a result, just very rapidly, most governments in the world banded together and agreed to ban fluorocarbons. So these carbons that were used in refrigeration that released chlorine into the atmosphere that ate away at the ozone layer. So within 40, less than 50 years, the ozone layer will have healed itself. So I think that's a real, it's a beautiful lesson that things can seem pretty grim, but the, there's, there's turnaround. And also don't forget to take into account the unknowable of nature. Nature exactly. has evolved to heal itself, to evolve, to change. And so it's never too late for something. We can't predict doomsday any more than we can predict a great outcome or avoiding a recession or a recession. So uncertainty is kind of a good one here, actually, isn't it? Well, I think the issue with the planet is the planet will definitely look after itself. Mm -hmm. But the thing we have to remember is it doesn't need us. Yeah. Yeah. So the earth will be here, you know, regardless of what we do. Yeah. This is what's always stumped me about people who 
deny climate change or or don't want to believe that it's man-made. And I'm like, it kind of doesn't matter. And I'm not an environmentalist because I just love trees so much. I'm an environmentalist because I want humans to survive on this planet. Yeah, exactly. It makes sense to me. Uh, so, yeah, I just think, oh, let's not faff about with that argument. I'm not going to get involved in that bun fight. Let's just do something about it. Let's I don't care if you agree on the cause, as long as you agree that we should, you know, regulate some things, change some things, innovate some things. Yeah. So in summing up, any one final thought you would like to leave listeners with? Well, I think the one thing I'd say is, you know, very often in the face of uncertainty, people are just paralyzed because they're waiting for the perfect plan. Mm. Uh, and they want it to be all connected and joined up like a perfect project, the Gantt chart and deadlines and all that kind of stuff. I think in life, you only know what the plan is looking backwards. And the key thing, therefore, isn't to stay indoors waiting for it to pop through your letterbox, right? The key thing is open the door, go for a walk and find out where you are. And in the course of doing that, your plan will emerge. And I know that sounds rather vague and airy-fairy, um, but every time I try it, it works. It's mm, a good proof point. You heard it from Margaret Heffernan. Just take a walk through life and see what unfolds because pff, nothing is certain. Your plans aren't really going to be plans (laughs) take it for a walk and see what adventure unfolds and don't be overwhelmed don't stare into the abyss too much is also something i would like to leave people with stop reading the news if it's getting to you yes if anything important you'll find out if you really need but take care of your mental health go for a walk instead enjoy nature as it is now yeah Margaret, I wish we had three hours. I would love to have you back at some point. So when your next book comes out, do you have another book in the pipeline, by the way? Well, I have one that's sort of um, stewing at the back of my mind, which I need to get cracking on. (laughs) May chapter one be your worst, and then it's just downhill from there. In a good way. Yeah, plain sailing after that. Well, in a way it is. It's like, just get it over with early. Because otherwise you're waiting probably every chapter to be like, is this the one? Exactly. (laughs) Well, okay. We will keep in touch. And when you have a new book or just something you really want to talk about coming up, I would absolutely love to have you back. This was just such a fun chat. So thank you so much for your time, for your work in the world and just being such an easy guest. (laughs) Well, thank you for just a wonderful conversation. It's Friday afternoon in England, and it's a wonderful way to end the week. So thank you. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much, Margaret. Okay. Bye. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like the discomfort practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. 
So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.